0: Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah, across from Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land, from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim, and Manassas, all the land of Judah as far as the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev, and the whole region from the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms as far as Zor. Deuteronomy 34, 1-3 Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I'm your host. <clears throat> I'd like to thank everyone for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed uh, the last episode and all the prior ones you've listened to. Uh, it's been a busy couple of weeks. Uh, D- December seen a huge number of downloads, and I'm uh, very pleased and uh I'm actually recording this very early this Sunday, um, it's well before noon, <laughs> believe it or not. My goal for this week is to uh, upload, a, get a few more uploads uh, scheduled for YouTube, kind of those backlogs of episodes. Uh, so if anyone is on YouTube and like to subscribe to the show, um, you can find me with the same name there. But, for now though, for this week, we're going to be talking about um uh asia and what they're going through at kind of our time frame for this season the 8000 to 6000 bc mark and we're just going to kind of continue on as it were kind of following similarly as we did um in the 10000 bc uh time frame now uh before we get too far into that though uh, I do need to kind of, uh, I guess, do like a palate cleanser, as it were, uh, before we get into this. Um, just kind of re reset the stage, as it were. Uh, and we will be going back a little bit, at least for the start of this episode, and then kind of continuing on. Um, and this first couple of episodes, we're probably going to be in the same general area for this episode. Um, Uh, for this region. Uh, Instead of starting in Arabia like we did after uh, we got done with Africa at 10,000 BC though, uh, we're going to be focusing on uh, the Middle East and the Levant more as a whole. We will of course talk about Arabia, um, but uh, it's not quite as central because um, well humans have already migrated through there. Um, It's not as big uh, or it's not as uh, central of an area for human development as it was at the 10,000 BC because that's kind of where humans probably initially left Africa from to get to um, India and then Australia and of course the rest of Asia but um, we will get there um, that's probably going to be our next section after we finish kind of um, the Levant the Middle East Uh, And that kind of brings me to one of the first big things I wanted to talk about, uh, that is terminology. Um, When we were here at the 10,000 BC mark, I went into the terminology of Mesopotamia and the origin for uh, the names of the Tigris and Euphrates River, uh, how we got those, and how, of course, um, we would define that region, the Fertile Crescent Mesopotamia, for the podcast purposes. Uh, now I want to go into detail about the term Levant and what I mean when I use that term. Um, I'm going, I'm kind of doing this piecemeal to fill some time, you know, for certain episodes, and because it, we advance through history, uh, new terms arise to describe regions that have been uh, defined slightly differently than they were earlier. Um, some are culturally descriptive, some are geographic. And then there are some that are both. So I will be using Levant as a purely geographical term uh, at least for now and I'm gonna try and redefine this in the future if I plan on changing that Um, but for now though just going to define what I mean when I say Levant and how that term came to be and how it has been used. So the term in English uh, was first used in the late 1400s AD and was derived from the French uh, term, levante and I apologize to my French listeners, uh, what few that there are, (laughs) uh, for that pronunciation, (laughs) please forgive me. Um, Now, this meant rising, which probably referred to the place where the sun rose. Uh, it has believed to have come into French from Italian where the term could be used as a synonym for both east and for rising uh, they of course have other words uh for each of those terms but that term means both uh, and as far as I know there's no other term that overlaps um they have another term for uh um East, and they have another term for rising, but no other term means both at the same time. So if that is the case, uh, it's possible that the Italian term came from a translation of the Arabic uh, term al-Mashriq, and this can refer to the East in general, or it can be translated poetically as the place where the sun shines forth. In geographic terms, this was meant to refer to the eastern half of the Arabic world. Um, They were referring to a much larger area than what Europeans were talking about when they used Levant. Um, I will be using a definition that is more in line with the traditional European definition, though it is slightly different also um you may have heard the term maghreb used describe like north africa and northwest africa um that is literally the the western half of the arabic world uh so there's the maghreb and the Mashriq. um for the arabs it was more um kind of um of course arabia itself and then um a lot of countries south of anatolia and parts of egypt all along the mediterranean coast up until you get to um the Zagros mountains in iran which of course they are not arabs they're um, varieties of uh, persian or persian speaking groups and some others as well but we'll get into all that in the future um, now though we're going to kind of focus back on my definition so, I am defining the region as starting at the tip of the Sinai Peninsula, at the very south. Uh, then you draw a straight line north to the Mediterranean. Everything on the eastern side of the peninsula is part of the Levant. And the small gulf on the Sinai, Sinai eastern half um, is the Gulf of Aqaba. Everything on the western banks of that are in the Levant as well. Uh, then there is a kind of a depression or dried out, massive old river valley that still divides the region from the nearby deserts and scrublands. You know the scrub, scrublands uh, and hills of uh, Arabia. The region continues north to the Dead Sea, and I am including everything west of the Jordan Rift Valley up to the Dead Sea, where the Jordan River feeds into it. Uh, this is where the Levant then fans out from a narrow strip of land to a broader area. Uh, it would, you know, it continues up in the west, up the coast until the uh, Anatolian Peninsula starts to jut out, uh, towards Greece. Somewhere around the modern city of, I think it's Dorital in the, in southern Turkey, uh, And yeah, so in the east, it would, um, in the east, uh, we're talking about it would spread to the north and east of where the Jordan River and Dead Sea meet along what is now the line of um, Jordan, Syria, and Iraq's borders, all the way to the western banks of the Euphrates River, and then as far north as the Syrian Turkey border. Basically, to the south of the Taurus and Caucasus Mountains, essentially what is the eastern half or eastern um, maybe um, maybe a third of the Fertile Crescent, depending on how you describe that region. And the western half of the Fertile Crescent, of, co- of course being Mesopotamia. Um, So I hope you can kind of follow along with that. I, I hope I've made that clear. I'm just kind of trying to give as succinct a description as possible. Um, So that's what I mean when I refer to the Levant, and then of course Mesopotamia, which we'll of course get into a little bit later. Uh, But for now though, we should probably start to focus on the people that are living in the region we've just discussed. Apologies for that brief edit there, I had a A lot more notifications come in, and then a siren came through. Um, I think I got most of the notifications out, but I know there are still a couple you're going to hear, Uh, but I do apologize. So, uh, we talked about uh, the Natufian culture the last time we focused on this region, and of course in last week's episode about them and their probable relations to uh, both the Harafian and the Fayum A cultures. Now, by the start of the time frame we're in now, 8000 BC, the Naltufian culture is considered to have disappeared around 1500 years or so prior. Uh, They, of course, didn't die out. Well, I I mean, obviously they did die, but the peoples who had been part of uh, the Naltufian tradition or their descendants didn't disappear and they weren't wiped out. Uh, But the similarities and continuity of artifacts and tools at the sites they occupied changed or even disappeared in some cases. Um, There are sites uh, that are abandoned as well that had been being used regularly. Uh, And there are new sites, of course, that are starting to be used. Um, We'll be talking about the groups that split and developed from this culture why they possibly did so, and kind of what was unique about them. Um, I should also identify where the Natufians were found so we can compare that with their successor groups. Um, Their sites and artifacts have been found as far to the south and west as the Sinai Peninsula, though not far inland, mostly along kind of the coast. Um, they occupied and roamed modern-day Israel, Palestine, Lebanon, and the western parts of Jordan that kind of border the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. They also seemed to occupy, uh, occupy a belt of territory that curved to the northeast into modern-day Syria up to the Euphrates River. And it seems they stayed between where the river turned from following almost directly south from Turkey uh, to the big southeast bend before it turns almost completely to the east. Uh, so it, it created a, a very large curve or bend. Uh, so somewhere between about 40 to 50 kilometers, which is uh, between 25 and 32 miles. Um along the river that they're occupying and they had sites on both sides of the river at this range. Uh, till day, unfortunately there is a lake over parts of this area, uh, on the Euphrates, um, which that made it harder for me to do the math on that. Uh, so that may be a little off. Also, um, you know, there are Natufian sites that are unfortunately now covered, um, by water. Um, also, uh, the Natufian culture went through periods where they were more mobile, uh, where they were a semi sedentary society, and then finally a fully sedentary society, although that period is very short in comparison to their whole history. And that brings up kind of the next thing I want to discuss about uh, both the Natufians and their success for. Successor groups. Um, The Natufian are uh, a group that is most uh, closely associated with the start of a period of time referred to as the pre-Pottery Neolithic. Uh, And this refers to kind of a transitory period of the New Stone Age, or the Neolithic, and that existed as um, various groups began to develop their technology in the run-up to the Creation or adoption of ceramic pottery. Uh, this term could be applied to a few different places, though there are others that it wouldn't apply to. Uh, places like in China, where they've had pottery for quite some time, uh, up until now. Uh, although, again, that's not all China, that's only certain groups in China. Um That said, it is usually used to describe the Middle East and the Levant as a whole, uh, and this makes sense as the term was invented by people studying the prehistory of this specific area. Uh, Think about how the three ages system of sewn bronze and iron works well in Europe is because it was designed based on European sites. Uh, As, of course, you move to different areas, that's not necessarily the best term to talk about human uh, adaptation and advancement as you know as a society or culture. Um, now this time frame is further split into sub periods, and those periods are further divided into generally early, middle, late, etc. Um, the primary uh, time frames we're going to refer to are the pre-pottery Neolithic A. Pre-Pottery Neolithic B, and there are even those that uh, also use Pre-Pottery Neolithic C. Um, This is a little bit rare to run across uh, because I think it's kind of like a, it's very limited in terms of its geographic scope, Um, uh, but we may run into it. I may have to use it at a couple of points later, but for now though, this is mostly going to be focused on um, PP&A and PP&B sites. Uh, Now, the start of the PPNA lines up with the last 500 years or so of Natufian culture. Uh, Though it is important to remember that the Natufian are, you know, while they're the most famous of the groups of the PPNA period, they're not the only ones. And not all PPNA sites are Natufian. And I guess I suppose that means it's possible that some Natufian sites may have been abandoned Before this time frame, um, but I I didn't really check the time frame on all of their sites to confirm that. So, I guess it makes sense that since that is the end of their cohesive period, um, that that would uh, probably be the case. Uh, Now, who succeeded the Natufians is, again, a matter of contention. Uh, there are those that try to tie the PPNA as its own cultural tradition, um, and there can be no doubt of some ties uh, between the Natufians, the PPNA, and other groups um, outside of the region that the Natufians you know lived in. Um, but there is a doubt as to whether those ties are genetic, linguistic religious, um, material, or you know some amalgamation of all of those. Um, and after the Natufians disappear, there are smaller regional subcultures under the PPNA umbrella tied to a smaller number of sites, um, though the sites themselves may be more uh, notable than you know even Natufian ones are. Um, and then there are, you know, cultures whose existence is tied to, you know, specific arrowheads or a specific, you know, type of tool made a certain way out of certain materials. All of these are controversial to some extent because there are claims that, you know, some cultures are an offshoot or a uh, uh, diver... Derivation from one of the others or, you know, vice versa. Uh, one example of this is the uh, Sultanian, or Sultanina culture and the Kiamian uh, uh, culture. Um, there is a paper I read from uh, the 1990s by uh, Danny uh, Nadal, Nadal that argues that the entirety of the Kiamean toolset and lack of specifically uh, datable material meant that the entirety of Kiamian artifacts were just an example of, like, uh, uh, late. Um, I'm sorry, uh, was just an example of Sol- uh, Sultanina groups exhibiting inner site variations or experimentations. Uh, though, from my understanding of that, is that the Kiamian arrowheads are. Sp- or were spread far wider than the rest of the Sultanian, uh toolkits. Now, I am not an archaeologist, and I am not skilled enough to look at stone tools and be able to tell their material, who made them, or when. Uh, so I'm not going to be able to offer uh, much in the way of an opinion on that. So I'm just going to try to lay out a few possibilities... And as much evidence as I can. Um, And this is going to remain true for a couple of uh, episodes specifically. Um, And I'll, of course, bring that up again if I need to. Um, But just keep in mind that all of this is very much based on some level of conjecture, conjecture. Now, again, all of the... neolithic sites in the levant are believed to be related to the nautufians and are considered to be their successors or successors to their successors or grand successors however you want to talk about that um and that is uh, you know they're related either by you know of course location toolkit genetics linguistics etc um these groups continued the experiments that the Natufians had done of living a more stationary, sedentary lifestyle, and continued to make it more and more feasible while still being hunter-gatherers. Now, you may ask, and it was a question for a while, as more and more evidence came out that sedentary or semi-sedentarism preceded agriculture. Uh, In some of our prior episodes, I've talked about how our ancestors are living in areas near several different kinds of environments and biomes. Uh, This is known as an ectone. In the southern Levant, for example, you have coastal plains, you have forests of cedars and other types of pine, uh, the famous cedars of Lebanon, of course, being part of that. In the, uh, you have small fertile river valleys and even mountains and hilly scrublands. So this gives them access to a number of wild plants, um grasses, grains, legumes, uh and you know, beans and even some wild fruit like like figs. Um so uh the now the, of course the major source of meat is still herds, but instead of following these animals like they, you know, um, our earliest ancestors did and those further in the north and the, the steppes um they have begun to prey on herds that move in and out of location seasonally um now semi-sedentary hunter and gatherer gather lifestyle could have been and probably was practiced to a small extent earlier than we expect um but the younger dryas interrupted any groups attempting this type of lifestyle uh and you know it caused of course you know a drop in vegetation and things like that so they probably had to be a little bit more mobile Um, but once it was over however it seems that the area became conducive to more permanent habitation again so as long as the environment could provide for their population until the herds arrive they were able to stay in you know More or less the same general area. Um, They would, of course, hunt small local game as well as fish, you know, in the areas year-round. They wouldn't just prey on the herds. But most bones found, I think, in this time frame are usually from types of wild antelope. And, of course, as time went on, uh, you begin to see... um, domesticated strains of plants they were eating and small herds of semi-domesticated uh, sheep cows uh, or oryx in this case and uh, you know then later um, you'll begin to see you know what are probably more domesticated animals it's hard to tell just from bones if in this early period if an animal was domesticated or you know if it was a wild variety um, but you know, as time goes on, around you know, starting around the 7000s BC, you'll probably begin to see pigs gradually become um, introduced into that domestic sphere, uh, which I'll be going into again when we talk about our our next domestication episode when we go over what has been added or will be added, you know, during this time frame. I'll go into more detail on pigs, but gradually all these uh, semi-domesticated strains of crops and animals are going to become more vital rather than supplemental to our diet, which is what they were at the start, at the, even at the 8,000 BC um, start of our timeline, um, and it is at this time that we have numerous sites that have emerged and become sorts of mixes uh, kind of between you know tiny towns or maybe base camps or watering holes or depots for several regional cultures. Now, uh, I'm going to go over the major ones uh, that have had the most research done on them. There are others, of course, and once you know more places start seeing intensive study and excavation, it's going to shift and refine our timeline more. And maybe, maybe even change what areas are considered more important. Uh, but for now, though, this is what we have. Um, so I'm going to start in the south of the Levant. We have a site near the modern city of Jericho. Uh, today, this is a Palestinian city on the West Bank. Uh, in Arabic, the name is Ariha, and the Hebrew name is Yariho. Now all of the sources I could find point to the name being uh, Canaanite in origin, though what the Canaanite meaning is, uh, or was for the, uh, for this, for this, uh, name is debated. Uh, most say it is related to the word rea or real, which means fragrant, uh, then there are those who say that the name comes from the their word for moon Yarea. Uh the city was home to a temple to a lunar god known as Yirik. Uh The reason most people think that Fragan is older is due to the fact that the site had been occupied far longer than the god has been attested in the area and the moon wouldn't be localized in the same way the surrounding um, you know wild places uh, plants uh, and palms, uh, and, you know, uh, there's a famous spring in the area, which we'll get into later, um, and there are, actually, there's numerous wild springs, uh, which, of course, results in, you know, a lot of fragrant foliage, uh, hence uh, why they think um, Rhea is the more probable origin term. Now, you may notice that the Arabic and Hebrew names mean the same thing, and as you can tell, By the similarity to their pronunciation, Canaanite is also a Semitic language, which is, of course, part of the Afro-Asiatic family. And we'll dive more into that subject, of course, later. But, to get back to uh, the actual type site of Jericho, which, again, uh, that's the modern name for it. Um, We don't know what... uh, what the people living here at that time would be calling it. Um, Could it have meant fragrant in an earlier language that the Canaanites themselves uh, translated or, you know, maybe descended from? Uh, Who can say? I think probably, um, probably not, just due to reasons. We'll get in here a little bit shortly. Now, uh, Jericho, Jericho was occupied at some level or another um, as early as 10,000 BC, probably for longer. But um, because of the nearby natural spring and water sources, um, it was very popular among the Natufian who made it, you know, a, a regularly used base camp kind of location. Now, at the end of the Younger Dryas, however, which is around 9600-9500 BC, uh, we see more and more evidence of continuous settlement and use of this site. Uh, the groups using the site are referred to as either um, uh, pre Neolithic, of course, which we talked about, and how it's kind of an umbrella term, but there's another couple of terms, uh, one being the Chiamians, and the other as the Sultanian. Um, again, this is a matter of some debate. Some say the Keemeans and the Sultanian are, you know, just different versions of the same group. Uh, that the Chiamians are just a Sultanian, uh, Sultanian, excuse me, there are a couple of different ways to spell this. I'll, I'll go into that later. Uh, that the Chiamians are just a Sultanian group that uses a slightly modified tool set. Some say it's the other way around. There are those that argue that the, uh, Chiamians are, um, the descendants of the Natufian, who stuck to a more traditional mobile hunter gatherer lifestyle. And the various regional Levantine sedentary groups are kind of their cousins who continue to experiment with, uh, the sedentary type of lifestyle. Um, there's another thought that the regional groups are actually uh, descendants of the Chiamians who, because of weather changes, saw that sedentary life might be more viable or more comfortable. And still others argue that the Chiamians uh, kind of were their own group, uh, that they were merely neighbors of the Natufian and then their descendants and all that you know, and that comes with all that that would entail. So fighting, trading, your marriage, etc. Uh, the Natufians do have artifacts from or, or material from far away. Things like obsidian or uh, volcanic rock. So they were trading. They were involved with trade. Uh, perhaps the Chiamians or their predecessors were involved with that. If they are unrelated. So, uh, But of course, again, that would come... If they were traders, that would of course... You know, come with all that would entail fighting, intermarriage, whatever. Now, the name Kiamean comes from a place called El Qayyim. Uh, this is located near the banks of the Dead Sea, not very far from Jericho. Um, I wasn't able to get a firm answer as to where their oldest site is thought to have been. Uh, Though, again, their artifacts are found in some places that do not overlap with the Natufian. Uh, They were never uh, quite as far south into the Sinai, uh, certainly not to Egypt or Arabia, but they were found all the way to sites on both sides of the Tigris River in the east. So they were further east than the Natufians has been found. But, whatever the exact case of the Chiameans, by 8,000 BC, uh, they have been gone for around 600 years at the latest. And the number of their artifacts seem to have been dwindling for longer than that. And uh, one of their most distinctive artifacts is um, they made very uh, interesting looking arrowheads out of chert. So, uh, they have been kind of going away. It's possible that they were indeed a late offshoot of uh, the Natufians um, and that they were getting swept up in this kind of uh, sedentarism that was sweeping kind of the area. Uh, The other group that is connected to Jericho and is kind of firmly tied to the site's early sedentary period and the pre pottery Neolithic uh, A period are the Sultanian. Um, that name comes from Tell es Sultan, which is the Arabic name for the tell that this ancient site was buried under. Uh, it translate uh, as the hill, the hill of the sultan. Um, now, tell is also an archaeological term which refers to kind of artificial hills or mounds that are left by successive long-term human uh, usage of a location. Uh, you know, they build up uh, homes and uh, encampments with things like um, uh, dirt or mud brick, and then as those collapse or fall into disrepair, they're eventually not done or replaced. So, uh, slowly over time, uh, the material used to construct homes is eventually used to build up uh, these mounds, which are then later uh, cleared away, leveled, and then reused. You'll see a lot of these in the Middle East and Turkey, uh, mainly because again they have been occupied for slightly longer periods of time. But there are other structures that are they're virtually identical details, you know, all over the world. Of course, some are bigger than others depending on where they were located and the types of material being used, but. Um, We'll go into more sites like that in the future. Uh, In all those places, not just here. Now, the Sultanian uh, group is kind of associated with the southern Jordan Valley, with uh, uh, Jericho being considered uh, their type site. Um, Now, again, they could be just part of a wider... P, P and A. And this is just like a variance, but um, at 8000 BC, several things had already happened at Jericho that may better be associated with the Natufian or, you know, whoever, you know, maybe like a transitory group between uh, periods, I guess, as they're uh, evolving from one group to the next. Um, but uh, there is evidence, you know, starting you know, probably somewhere between 9,500 to 9,000 BCE, um, Jericho already had, um, small kind of circular, uh, dwellings made of, like, um, mud brick, uh, you know, and this would include, um, uh, things like straw, you know, kind of padded in to kind of make it uh, thicker, uh, and then, of course, being dried with, um, um, sun, uh, so it would be clay, straw, kind of mashed together, and then these bricks would kind of be, um, plastered together with kind of a mud mortar. Um, the houses are generally, you know, around the same size, uh, I don't think there's anything bigger than, you know, 20 feet, um, and, you know, they, they probably have, um, very simple, uh, uh, roofs made out of things like, um, you know, um, sticks or, you know, small, uh, twigs, just kind of mud, you know, mud, uh, mortared together, similar to the bricks. Um, there is, um, burial of the dead by these early groups. In fact, um, this is something I didn't bring up with the Fayum and, uh, the culture, mainly because, um, they emerge again as our time frame is ending, but this is something you see in a lot of places uh, in the Middle East. Um, that is the burial of uh, dead family members under the floor of the homes they're living in. Um, you know, uh, there's a number of reasons for why they think this was done. Um, some say it's kind of like a claim on, you know this house, it's yours, you know, we've got my, you know, so, such and such generations of grandparents, you know, right here in the floorboards, this proves this house is mine, um, it could have been, like, a kind of, uh, maybe they were protecting the home from spirits, uh, they didn't want them to kind of be, um, uh, upset with them after they died, you know, just kind of keeping them close, um, there's a number of things that this could have been used for, um, you know, and this is something that, uh, you'll kind of see change gradually over time. Eventually, there are separate burial areas, but a lot of early Neolithic cultures, uh, at least in, uh, Egypt and the Middle East, yeah, you see a lot of, uh, keeping parts of your dead relatives with you for who knows whatever reasons, um, yeah, I love both my parents, but I don't know if I'd want their skulls like underneath my floorboards. And I don't know if they'd like that either, to be quite honest. Um, I don't think they would. But And of course, again, we've already talked about how they're relying on hunting uh, mostly antelope with very little, um, well, not little, but a much less reliant on um, semi-domestic animals and plants. Uh, by the start of our timeline, though, at 8,000 BC, theres um, there's been a lot of growth in and around Jericho. Um, in fact, uh, during the 50s, uh, when this site was being excavated by Kathleen Kenyon, uh, she did a six-year study of the area that was kind of like a follow-up on an earlier studies, I believe in the... The early 30s, um, she was kind of excavating a site using some newer techniques like stratifi- uh, stratification, uh, things like that, to kind of help date the site because the stuff in the 30s, you know, it had kind of uh, connected the site and the walls with um, you know the story of Jericho in the Bible that I, I partly quoted from at the start of this episode. Uh, she was able to push back the dating on this site much further. Uh, She was also able to find another structure uh, that we're going to talk about. Um, But essentially what she was finding is that Jericho at the time um, was the earliest, I guess um, you might call, city uh, found. Um, When this, of course, was... And it was older by almost uh, 5,000 years than what the previously thought oldest city was. Um, now, uh, we can get into a debate about what a city is and, you know, what it constitutes, that kind of thing. And that was, of course, a debate held by people kind of reviewing and responding to her work at the time, Um but, uh, while I wouldn't necessarily myself call it a city, it is certainly far more advanced than anything uh, we had suspected up to that point. It, it may not be a city, but it is well on its way to becoming one, at least at the time frame she is proposing, uh, or, you know, that she laid out. Um, and it is, whether it's a city or not, it is the first walled city or First walled settlement that we have a record of, and these walls were were very large, uh, especially considering, you know, these people did not have um, pottery or writing or draft animals, things like that. Like this is uh, this is something un- unique uh, at history, at least at this point, or at least it was something that was brand new, uh, something that was never attempted at this scale, I'm sure, before. Um, There may, of course, have been wooden walls at earlier times that, of course, we don't have records of, can't find any more, but these stone fortifications, uh, if that's what they were, uh, it's possible they weren't used for defense. It's possible they could have been more monumental or it could have been used to keep people in. Uh, It was probably defensive, of course, to an extent. Uh, I don't think you would bother building these if you weren't expecting to need them. But, um, again, that's maybe just me uh, kind of projecting uh, my own opinions on things into the past. Uh, in terms of size, um, they were around uh, 2 meters uh, thick, which is about six and a half feet. Uh, and then they were, I think... Uh, 17 feet high, which is like 5.1 or 5.2 meters high. Um, And of course, this isn't consistent. These weren't like perfectly mapped out. But that's what they are at their thickest and highest points. Um, Which, you know, again, I think, um, you know, fortification is probably likely. So uh, this makes it basically the oldest city wall discovered pretty much anywhere even though there have been sites that have i think been found recently that show that um maybe um jericho might not be the oldest city and it's certainly not the oldest um uh settlement uh which we'll get into again in the next couple of episodes but there was a period of time uh for around 40 years or so i think uh that that was kind of considered you know Um, that that was considered the case so just uh just something to keep in mind for the future and just kind of show you how things can change uh now there was also a ditch uh for you know that was surrounding the wall and i think it was around um i think they've estimated it was about 27 30 feet um wide which is about eight meters, uh, and then it was about um, three meters deep, or about nine feet deep, and it was that was cut through bedrock, so um, the amount of labor needed to do that uh, it would have, you know, and to cover the size of the town, which was about um, which I think covered about, you know, 2,000 feet which is like six, 650, 600 meters, um, just the, the amount of labor would have been tremendous. So that has led people to kind of conjecture like how many people lived in uh, Jericho. Um, it would have, you know, it may not have been more than a couple of thousand, but um, to get that many people to work together uh, would have been incredible, uh, and it's very possible that you know it could have been done over a much longer period of time with fewer people. Um, the last estimates I was able to read um, were from I think I think it was February of last year, um, and that was just from a encyclopedia which was just, you know, converted over from earlier notes. I think the most recent, like, new, like, estimates I saw was, like, 2004. And basically, the numbers range from there were anywhere between, you know, 200 to no more than 3,000 at most. Uh, And that's, of course, at peak population. There's always the chance that, you know, that people weren't living there full time. It's very possible that... This could have been like a kind of a ritual, like some of the families out hunting and gathering, some of the families nearby tending the crops, and then, you know, they might uh, congregate seasonally, uh, kind of like how hunter-gatherers did. But whatever the case, even if it's towards the lower end of 200 people, that would be, that would probably be permanent. And, um, you know, hunter-gatherer groups... Again, they're small family bands. You're not looking at more than 20. And that is, you know, that is most of the time, again, they would swell probably to slightly larger bands in the winter. Of course, when they did their whole, you know, trained, um, trade you know, family members and, you know, intermarriage and, you know, band together to hunt, you know, when things are a little bit harder to get off the ground and the trees. Um so they would have access to much more labor, uh, much more resources regularly uh, than, you know, hunter-gatherer bands. Um, so, uh, you know, it could have taken a while. I think 8,000 BC is kind of like the midpoint. There's some speculation it could have been built, you know, in the century or two prior to that. And it's continually in use uh, until, you know, about 7,300 Or so BCE, Um, and in addition to the walls, you also have the Tower of Jericho, and this is this is huge. It's like nine meters tall, which is about twenty-eight feet, give or take. It's slightly less than nine meters. It might be eight and a half. Um, But uh, this thing um, is—it's like it it itself is as big as those walls. Uh, now, what the tower was used for is a little bit more based on conjecture. Um, it, of course, was probably a great lookout spot, especially on top of uh, the hill where Jericho was. Um, but it could have also been used as a storehouse for grain um, or you know other resources. Uh, it could have kind of served as an early version of a castle or a keep, um, maybe to house a specific uh, person or family uh, to kind of keep watch or, you know, to kind of maybe lead the city and then uh, go from there. Now, the tower itself isn't... uh, The walls on it aren't quite as thick as um, as the walls of Jericho, uh, I think the tower is no more than five feet thick, uh, maybe even slightly less than that. Um, its base is about 30 feet. Um, and then as it went up, it got, you know, narrower, uh, to around, uh, 23 feet at the top. Um, so it, you know, it is something, um, you know, uh, that is, um, it's still impressive even if it's not quite as gargantuan in terms of depth as uh the you know the walls were uh it was definitely a you know strong addition and this thing kind of think of it as like a squat like almost a fat tower um and it had uh steps kind of carved into the back to like kind of let you in so it was not you know it was not um completely thick all the way through uh i think they've estimated that it would. excuse me, uh, sneeze, so I, I cut myself there, off there. Um, they estimated that it took about 11,000 days to complete, uh, for one human. So, um, uh, obviously if they have a couple of hundred people, uh, that, that does cut down. Um, and if, you know, they obviously had more, it, that would make it substantially less. Um, so, you know, but that does show that they're devoting time and resources, that they have enough resources to have this additional time for people to not be hunting and gathering, which is of course all the work that a hunter and gatherer would ever do. That's all they would ever need to do. That and cleaning and you know, you know, just normal day to day stuff, which you know you may not even consider work. Uh, so, the, yeah, they, they have uh, some type of um, stockpiles that they are keeping to allow them to, you know, undertake this task. Um, now, uh, again, I, I went into what this could be. It's possible that this was a type of storage place or silo. It's also possible it could have some type of religious connotations. Um, there are other societies that... You know, if they're on towers, they, you know, or at higher um, elevations, they, you know, they think they're closer to the heavens, that kind of thing. Um, And then not just in other regions, like that is something that happens in this region, even in later times. And uh, maybe not even later times, it may be happening in other sites that are contemporaneous with Jericho. And there is, of course, even now evidence that Jericho uh, or excuse me, there is now evidence that there were maybe other towers uh, that even predated Jericho in the region. Um, I think at Tel Karamel, which is a site in uh, Syria, further to the north of here. Uh, actually, I think it's near the city of modern- day Aleppo, uh, there was excavations being done by a Polish Syrian team, um, just trying to, you know, see what they could find in the area. I think they found the remains of, uh, of quite an old settlement. Um, I couldn't get the exact dates, because that is a matter of some contention, but that it was predating Jericho, and that it may have been, like, a proto-city, much similar to Jericho, uh, and that it had five towers that are very similar to to what you would see, uh, or what you would have found in Jericho, so uh, they didn't have just the one tower; they had multiple. They had five, um, and that you know if this place was older even than Jericho. You know that could mean that it was. Um, you know, it's possible that this was around, and it was an Atufian site, uh, and it could have been related to. Um, the culture that is going on in um, Göbekli Tepe and Catalhoyuk, uh, and that maybe that Jericho is perhaps perhaps a colony of those groups further to the north, or that the kind of the information was disseminated along trade routes because Jericho is definitely involved in trade. There are again you have signs of obsidian and volcanic rock that would not be found in the area. Uh, so there, there is some type of trade going on. Um, so yes, there is evidence of an older site uh, that has a kind of a similar um, tradition of building, you know, early monolithic structures. Um, so, you know, how closely related they are, if they're both Natufian descendants or the Natufians were interacting with the people at Tel Caramel, and then they disseminated that to their descendant groups. Again, we can't really say. And unfortunately, the site in Syria, um, due to the civil war breaking out, uh, they were had to cut it short. I think they only got, you know, a, like less than 50% of the site even, like, fully documented and excavated, so... That civil war does not seem to be close to stopping, so unfortunately we may never know what happened there. Uh, But uh, to continue with Jericho, um, so yes, the walls, the tower are in use for a few hundred years until you get to about somewhere between 7,300 to 7,000 BCE and Jericho is then abandoned for a period of time. Why it was abandoned is, of course, unknown. Um, There are a number of theories. Uh, It has been suggested that perhaps there was an earthquake in the area. Uh, That would explain why a portion of the walls collapsed and the tower kind of eroded away, at least at the top. Uh, There is always the possibility that it was invaded. After all, why build walls if you don't need them? Uh, It's possible that they were kind of under attack from a group. And there is, of course, the possibility that uh, there was some type of plague or illness that spread. Uh, Again, this is very early in the days of uh, animal rearing. Perhaps that we have our first crossover of a virus and that it was spreading among the more tightly compact, even though uh, Jericho is not, of course, a planned out city. It is still a relatively contained one. Um, And I didn't mention it, but the houses, there is no central planning. This site does not seem to be grid-shaped. There is not any type of um, center structure Uh, that is necessarily taller. Of course, there is the tower, but most of the homes seem to be, you know, within reasonable dimensions and relation to each other in terms of size. It's, it's kind of a, it's very much a organically grown city. It's not centrally planned. Um, so yeah, perhaps, um, perhaps there was a plague, perhaps they were attacked by an outside group. Um, you know, Perhaps they were overgrowing their crops. Perhaps there was a bad case of soil erosion. Um, but whatever the case, uh, you know, the site is abandoned for uh, a couple of hundred years, at least um, in terms of large settlement. It's always possible that there could have been um, small groups that stay behind, maybe stragglers or squatters uh, from an outside group or just people who just didn't want to leave. And they're like, well... It's good enough. Eventually, though, uh, it would be resettled. um, And there has been kind of a change or evolution uh, in the culture. Uh, And this is now the period uh, known as pre-Pottery Neolithic B. Um, But uh, we're going to go more into that, I think, in the next episode. Um, I've been recording for almost an hour now. And, um, yeah, it's been, uh, it's been a very long episode. In fact, this will be the longest episode. Um, I do need to try and get a little bit more of those notifications out. And I think there are some sirens that still need to be edited out as well. Um, I can't guarantee I'll get rid of everything, but I'm certainly going to try. Uh, I'd like to thank you all for listening. Uh, if you have any questions or feedback, please let me know. Uh. I hope you've enjoyed uh you can reach me of course at my email war at at gmail.com or of course you can reach me at my twitter link which i will include in the description uh yeah so next week we'll be back we'll be continuing with the jericho at uh during the pre-pottery neolithic b and we'll um of course continue on through the region uh after that um I don't think it. the next episode will be entirely based in Jericho, um, but we will uh, have to see, I suppose. But yeah, if, please let me know if there's any questions or if you catch anything that you might like to point out, please tell me. Um, but yeah, I hope you enjoy and I hope you continue listening and I'd like to thank you for doing that on, uh, you know, on this weekly basis. But uh, yeah, I hope you'll be back next time. Thank you and have a great rest of your day.